This is Neil Rockind. I'm the host of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And week in and week out, we feature some of the very best criminal defense lawyers, very best civil trial lawyers anywhere in the country. We pick their brains. We talk about war stories. If you like the content, subscribe and like. We've got thousands upon thousands of views on our YouTube videos. We've got thousands of, of listens and likes and shares on the, the podcast which you can get on any platform, anywhere, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And today is no exception. I've got an incredible guest, Vadim Glasman, who's a lawyer from Chicago who just won back-to-back uh, -back federal cases, back-to-back -back huge verdicts. Um, and we're going to talk about those. And he's my guest on this week's episode of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Vadim, welcome to the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Very humbled. You've had uh, quite a list of guests on the show. <laughs> I have. So tell me a little bit about, let, let's start there. Let's start with your, um, your, your last two huge cases. We'll talk about some other ones, but you just had back-to-back -back trials. Tell me about those. Um, I had a federal trial that started in August and went five weeks into uh, September. We represented the ex-business manager for R. Kelly, um, singer-superstar. And we got a full acquittal on all four counts that he was charged with. He was charged with one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice, one count of conspiracy to receive child pornography, and then two actual counts of receiving child pornography. So we got a full acquittal on that. And then just last week, I had another federal trial, and I got a not guilty on the possessing a firearm and furtherance of a drug trafficking offense. So let's talk a little bit, if we could. Let's Let's. I just want to start, if I could, with the the case involving um, R. Kelly's manager. So, R. Kelly is a controversial figure, to say the least. Um, tell me about the trial, and tell me how you went about trying the case. Well, let me let me back up. Was R. Kelly part of that trial? Yes, his lawyer tried to sever the case a few months before trial, and the judge denied it. Um, and so he was there, all three defendants were on trial and we never wanted a severance. We thought if anyone can get a severance, we could probably move for a severance and get it based on the amount of evidence against R. Kelly versus ours. And there'd be a lot more prejudicial evidence coming in, but as a tactical matter, we decided not to, and wanted to face trial with him. Was, are you comfortable sharing the, the strategy behind why you'd want your client in trial with R. Kelly? Sure. I think it put kind of everything into perspective more. So when you learn more about R. Kelly and the way he ran his business, and I think some of this came out during his New York trial and Chicago trial is he compartmentalized the people that worked for him. So not everyone who worked for him knew about all aspects of his life. So that's one of the things we wanted to highlight. The other aspect we knew is if we go to trial alone, hundred percent of the fingers are pointing at us. If we're going to trial with R. Kelly, there's going to be a lot more evidence just against him that wasn't coming in against us. So we kind of be able to shy away from it and show, hey, look, you know, there's also all these other things that were going on that our client knew nothing about. So let's, so th that's so smart. And um, that's brilliant strategy because, and let's break that down a bit if we can. When you're alone with your client on trial, the case name is the, it could be the state of Illinois or the state of Michigan or the United States of America versus your client. And then you're the only one sitting there. So when you say all fingers are pointing at you, at a minimum, all eyes are on you. 
Absolutely. And on your client, there's only one person that they can, and the jury either has to walk out with acquittals and say, we acquitted that guy. Or they have to walk out and say, we convicted him, which means that that's, they have to go home stomaching that or accepting that. When you've got, but you have R. Kelly there, it gives you what? It gives you like, um, it gives you some cover in a way. It gives us some cover. And I think, you know, the jury actually did a really good job in this case. They were able to separate the prejudices from R. Kelly and, you know, acquit him on seven of the 13 counts also. And it just happened that our four counts overlapped with the seven counts that he got acquitted with. So then he still got convicted of six. And as you know, in federal court, it doesn't always matter how many acquittals you get. If you get convicted of one, the sentencing guidelines don't really go in your favor. Right. No, but, they, they don't. You know, they, I, I think the jury did a good job and they felt that they weighed the evidence fairly. And you're right. They didn't walk out of that courtroom thinking, you know what, we let everyone go. Right. Which is, and I know that to, to the, to the, to the average person or to the lay person, that may seem so hard to, to understand, like, why would that matter? But we, and I'll ask you, why do you think that matters to the, to why is that an important calculus in deciding whether you should have a, um, as far as jurors go? I think just being indicted is prejudicial in and of itself. I know people want to come into jury duty and say, you know what, we could be fair and impartial. But if you talk to anyone on the street or, you know, you have your friends over for dinner, they're going to say, you know what, he probably did it if they see like an indictment on the news or something. So I think some people have a hard time walking out of a federal courthouse and just saying, you know what, the government didn't prove anything. I'm happy this guy's going home. By kind of taking that into calculus, you know that you know, maybe they'll follow the law on other counts if you give them some other counts. And just to draw a parallel on this last one, I got a not guilty on last week. I didn't dispute any of the facts. And I, I came up to the jury in opening and in closing. And I said, look, the fact finding portion of this is going to be really easy for you. What's going to be hard is applying the facts to the law. And it was one drug count and one gun count. And then in closing, I came up and I said, look, I'm going to save you a lot of time. Go back in the jury deliberation room, mark guilty on count one, and move on to count two. We're, we're not here for that. I'm not here to waste your time. And it was just important for me to keep my credibility like that. And they ended up deliberating longer than the entire trial was and finding my client not guilty of the gun count. And of the count that was that carried the, that really was the one that you were there to fight over. That was the only right. one I wanted to fight over. We couldn't right. work out a plea on it and saved him five consecutive years. So- Tell me a little bit about, I mean, obviously you, you, you know your way around the courtroom. Paint the courtroom for us a little bit in, in the courthouses. In, right now, let's talk about the federal courthouse in Illinois. So are you allowed to approach the jury? Do you get freedom to kind of roam around the courtroom? Do you have the ability to um, engage the, the jury in voir dire? Engaging the jury in voir dire is really more judge to judge. Some judges allow you to, some don't. The pandemic really changed a lot. Now a lot more judges are using questionnaires and you get the answers to those ahead of time, a couple of days ahead of time. And then when it comes down to jury selection, you only do follow-up questions on what you read in the questionnaires, which I don't prefer. I like hearing the jurors answer all questions because reading your answers on a piece of paper isn't the same thing as hearing how someone answers those questions and what their demeanor is. And even... In the last couple of trials I did, I thought I really wasn't going to like a juror based on their answers. And when they started talking, I completely changed my mind about them. Do so you do I, that? I, are, are you comfortable? You go in there and you, you score jurors kind of based upon their the 
and do you allow yourself to kind of shift and to, to change your opinion or at least some your your thought during the trial or do you kind of stick with what you with uh, with what you went in with? No, I think you have to be able to change. I think it's nice to have an outline and you know what, based on some of these characteristics, I'm probably not going to like this person or I'm going to make a four cause challenge on some of these, but you have to be able to change because someone you like might, you know, answer a follow-up question in a terrible way. And then who are you going to switch that person with? And you also want to think about who's the government going to try to challenge, who, who are they going to use their preemptories on? So I think it's a fluid situation. And I think any trial lawyer knows that there's no exact science to pick in a jury. No, no, but I... I would always prefer to pick the jury to take part in it myself, to be able to rub up, you know, I mean, to kind of get the, 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 the feel to watch how they move to, you know what I mean? To watch their reaction. I feel much better and much more able to draw jurors out of their shell than I think judges do judges. In my experience, I'm not saying every judge, I think a lot of judges are interested in getting the jury picked. They want to preserve and they want to get everybody that's on the panel. They want them to, to, to be salvaged or saved from forecast challenges. Absolutely. They hate forecast challenges. <laughs> you know, uh, your honor, I, he said he couldn't stand uh, defense lawyers and defendants. And he would, you know what I mean? Sir, are you telling me, can't you follow the laws? I give it to you. I mean, you know, you got a judge. Absolutely big regal you know uh bench and he's looking down and mr Gosman, are you saying that you can't be fair your honor i can be fair <laughs> okay um so so let me ask i mean so so what's your you know how do you deal with that let's go right to it how do you deal with that when you want to make a four cause challenge and the judge is trying to shut you down how do you deal with those types of judges you know, I try to differentiate the potential juror that I'm trying to do for cause from the ones that I think are preemptory. And just in more of my more recent ones, I'm just thinking about them because it just happened. Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. I'd love to hear that. So, you know, sometimes the judge will do the follow up question. Can you be fair and impartial and follow the laws? I give it to you. And they look the judge in the eye and say, yes, I can. Even though you kind of think, you know, they're probably not telling the whole truth or just feeling comfortable saying no. But some of them, you really have to pull it out of them. And they're still kind of equivocal in the way they give the answer. And, you know, the judge says, well, Mr. Glasman, they said they could be fair and impartial. I go, I know, judge, but, you know, this is an uncomfortable situation for everyone. People come in here, they don't know how to answer these questions, but they still find it in themselves to be able to say, yes, I can be impartial when you ask them the question. And this person, it took 10 tries to get there. So. <laughs> right. You know, there's that. something holding them back. And do you ever do you ever have judges that agree with you and say, um, okay, you've convinced me? Or do they, in your experience, do they go back to the well and try to get an 11th agreement from that juror that they can be fair and impartial? It happens. It just depends on the judge. Every judge is different. Um, depends how big the veneer is. It's just so let's go back and tell me how I, I, I want to ask you, there's a there's a comment from the Chicago Sun-Times. I know that it's on your Facebook page. We'll talk about that or your, your website. But it says, Glosman pilloried prosecution witnesses. What <laughs> trial is that from? That's from the ex-business manager, Farrar Kelly. Tell me, was... about, tell me about that quote, because that, that's a dream quote for this podcast and a dream quote for any lawyer who champions himself as a 
as a good cross-examiner. Well, I appreciate that. I wish I could tell you that was based on my cross-examination, but <laughs> that was based on my opening statement. I completely tore into their three cooperators. Um, pretty much their entire case against Mr. McDavid was based on these three cooperators. And they were just, you could tell just from the 302 reports and the grand juries, these people were just liars, terrible liars, the scum of the earth. And they got full immunity for everything they did. They never got charged, never anything. So it was important for us right from the beginning just to take the steam out of anything they were going to say. And, you know, I, I wish I could come in here and say, you know, it was based on my brilliant cross-examination, but that <laughs> well, one was based on an opening statement. Listen, I know there are people that have cross-examined really well in lost cases. I know people that have cross-examined poorly and have won cases. But usually in a big case, you, you have to have cross-examined pretty effectively in order to carry the day. You and I both know that if you don't cross-examine the state's witness as well, um, and sometimes that means not saying anything, sometimes it means taking a different tack than you would have, but sometimes it means you just have to show the jury that these folks are not people that in their lives they would ever trust or that they would ever think about trusting. So what did you do in this case? Because, I mean, you've got a notorious case, you have a notorious um, uh, co-defendant and you walked your client out of the courtroom. So something you did was right. What happened here was these cooperators, especially the main one, Chuck Freeman was such a liar that the other evidence that the government was putting in, in their case in chief contradicted him. And then he would give these stories that were completely outrageous and outlandish. And I don't know how anyone could believe him. And then the other two people they put on contradicted each other. And it wasn't even, you know, you didn't have to cross-examine them by impeaching them that much. Just the stories they were telling on their face were contradictory of each other, all three of the main ones. And the third one, pretty much what he said made my client innocent. So we really put a lot of, you know, stake into what he said, and we didn't have to impeach him at all. We kind of came up in closing and said, he told the truth. You know, well, let's, the let's, let's talk about that. So a couple, how many witnesses were called in the case? Oh, a lot. Probably at least 30, maybe more. It was a five-week trial. Were, were the witnesses, did they all offer evidence against your client? No, and that was one of the reasons that we didn't move to sever is because it was only going to be a small percentage. So out of the five weeks that we were on trial, maybe a week, week and a half was about my client. Did the government focus the 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 week a week and a half was that all at one time or was that spread out throughout the course of the case no it kind of went like right in the middle the first few witnesses they put on all went against r kelly then they did the witnesses that kind of overlapped between everyone and then they finished with r kelly witnesses so what'd you do when the witnesses during the trial tell me how did you handle the r kelly witnesses in the beginning and the end when you didn't have as much or really anything to do one simple phrase, no questions, Your Honor. <laughs> sometimes I had a judge once tell me, Mr. Rockine, sometimes the best question is the one that you chose not to ask. Absolutely. Right? The, the older I get, the more I realize how true that is. Yes. So, so you had the ability to, you gave your opening statement, which was clearly a strong opening statement. You didn't take the wait and see what the evidence comes in. You went after the government's case. That, that's usually my MO in most cases. I like to give the Good. jury something to think about. Good. Good. You give them a counterweight. Yeah. And then you, then you, um, what was your theme? Our theme was that our client 
didn't know the things he knows now back then. So when we're telling the jury to look at the lens of what our client knew between 1997 and 2008 versus what we know now, or hindsight's 2020, that was actually the other co-defendant's theme in his opening was hindsight's 2020. But essentially our defense was during this tumultuous time in R. Kelly's career, you know, between 98 when the accusations started coming out and 2008 when he got acquitted in Cook County, they hired the best of the best in the business to defend him. You know, they got the best entertainment lawyer in the country, Jerry Margolis. They got the best criminal defense attorney in Chicago, Ed Jensen. They got the best investigator in the country, Jack Palladino, who, you know, worked for Bill Clinton and a whistleblower against the tobacco industry. Just really well-known guys who are really good at what they do. And, you know, our client listened to their advice. That's why you hire these people. So it was kind of a imperfect advice of counsel defense since our client wasn't the client mixed with, well, what do we know then versus what do we know now? So I've tried cases. Hindsight is oftentimes not our friend as the defendant in a criminal case, because we have to get the jury to divest themselves of what they're learning now, right? From what was going on at the time, like in an accident or in another matter, like we have to get them to separate like, yeah, I understand you, you, you know, yeah, you, you didn't call 911 when you saw the car on the road, you didn't pull over to see if they needed help. You didn't, uh, you saw the car get off and pull over in a rest stop area, which is a case that I actually tried. You saw the car get off and you thought to yourself, good, it's getting over. He's going to look at his car. He's going to be able to fix it. It's going to be able to take care of it. You didn't call 911 and say, this guy's a danger or this guy's in trouble or this guy's you know, driving erratically. Afterwards, when you found out what was going on, that changed your, that's when you began to get emotional about things. That's when you began to put pieces together. And that's when you, that colors your, it's hard to separate those things. It's hard to separate what you know now from what you knew then, right? Absolutely. And that sounds like what you were doing in this case, which was obviously a very effective strategy. Well, yeah, when you look at it, the last what, five, six years about R. Kelly, you had all these documentaries come out about him, you had all these indictments come out about him, all these new accusations, and there's a lot more mass media now than there was 20, 25 years ago. So everyone hears all these really prejudicial things, and part of jury selection was trying to figure out who can set that aside. I mean, it, it's really surprising how many people saw surviving R. Kelly, and, you know, put that aside. So what we had to do is, okay, we know all these terrible accusations about him now, but think about what was going on back then. We had proof that there were people doing false accusations, documentary proof of this, that they were trying to extort him for money. And then when these 2002 allegations in Cook County came out against him, no one turned his back on him. He was winning Grammy Awards. He was going on talk shows. He was doing world tours. I think his career was at the highest peak during the six years he was under indictment. So when you separate all these things you know now from all those things no one knew back then, how can you expect him to act a certain way back then? So you said something interesting, which I think is really fascinating about the, the number of people that saw um, surviving R. Kelly. Tell me about that. R. Kelly's lawyers were trying to voir dire on this as much as possible because, I mean, I never watched it. I, I started representing this client kind of around the time that came out and I figured I needed, needed to watch it myself, but... I would say at least half of the veneer, if not more, probably saw at least some episodes of it. And it's 
and but a lot of the witnesses that surprised that, you. It sounds like that surprised you. Well, I didn't realize how prevalent this all was. I didn't know how interested people were in this. And what made this even more interesting is this wasn't some kind of ancillary issue. People who were interviewed on surviving our telly were testifying at our trial. Mm. And, and it actually ended up that one of the witnesses who was against my client um, spoke on surviving R. Kelly. And we used clips of her interview in that documentary to impeach her of what she said happened at trial. So did you put the, did you gather the clips ahead of time? Did you kind of have an idea where you were going to help me construct the use of the clips? How did you end up doing that? We had um, someone from our office watch the clips where she talked and see where they overlapped with what we knew she was going to testify about. And one of the issues that was central to the government's case, it was about the contents of what one of the tapes had on it that my client allegedly received. She gave three or four completely different stories about what was on that tape. So when it goes to the core of the government's case, we needed to show that, you know, she said one thing in 2008, she said another thing during her first interview, then another thing during her grand jury, then in Surviving R. Kelly, she said something else. And, I, you know, I think she lost all credibility. Something interesting that you, that you, did you use long clips? Did you have short clips? Um, sure, just like a minute, minute and a half of where she's talking about this specific instance and it was actually funny she was trying to get around it by saying she can't trust the editing of the production company <laughs> and that they were like moving around her words so we would play it for her and be like which part of that could have possibly been edited right oh my god it's like when they blame the it's like when they blame the 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 transcript oh she did that too these aren't my words the transcript is wrong you're like you're saying that that court reporter right there that 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 one sitting right there to your right <laughs> yeah, this particular witness blamed the court reporter from the grand jury transcript, the FBI agent who wrote the 302 report, and the production company for editing because they all gave different versions. Everybody but her, right? Yep. So, um, so I'm going to add that's a great approach to a cross examination of a witness like that because she's just, she's cutting herself. She's literally just each time you're doing that. Not only do you have the, the four or five central points of impeachment, she changed her story, but she's denying the things that the jury is, that you're playing for them, that you're showing them. Oh, absolutely. That wasn't even the worst part of this witness. Since Tell me the worst part. Tell me the worst since part. Since 1998, when she met R. Kelly and had some kind of relationship with him, she's been telling people she was 17 years old. And it wasn't until about half a year before this trial that the government dug into it and found out she's been lying about her age and she was actually 18 and of, of age when she first met him. So oh, she could have never had an underage relationship with him. And so she kept trying to talk around why she lied about that, why her memory was, and it was just, it looked bad. Just drowning, just drowning, drowning. In, in, in lies. And then you had, a, there's an interesting juxtaposition. Tell me about the witness, set the stage for the witness that you you wanted to, I, I know people use the term soft cross, but you wanted to use a positive constructive cross of, of, a, of a witness who you believe was helpful to your client. Set that up for me. Well, that was interesting. We didn't know he was going to be helpful. We thought he was going to try to bury us too. So the attorney on our team who was going to cross him had a very long and lengthy cross full of impeachments that we were going to use. And we're sitting there during his direct examination and just looking at each other bewildered because 
he's saying things that we need him to say. And so he kind of scrapped the entire cross-examination he had written and just started having him reiterate these things that helped our case. And then he felt that this witness wasn't going to really hurt us. So he kind of asked some open-ended questions he didn't really know the answer to, but he gave us what we wanted. And, you know, one of the issues in the case was this tape that the woman from the surviving R. Kelly was talking about. And she talked about how it was a threesome with her, R. Kelly, and an underage girl. And this witness goes up there and says, no, she sent me that tape. I watched it. It was a regular threesome with adults. So. Wow. So let me, so what's amazing about that is, is that I, every, people think that sometimes like, we, I'm sure you, whomever you're, your your who was your co-counsel that you tried the case with? Bo Brunley. Okay. So he got up there, I'm sure, and um made it look like that was the plan all along when he's crossing this witness, except you got to sit there and as you know, you got a you got a whole notebook and a three-ring binder and tabs and and stickies to uh, you know, chapters, where to go from here. I mean, unless it's all in your head, but where to go yeah. from here, just what line, what, what exhibit number. And the great lawyers are able to just take that and put that aside and say, look, this witness is being helpful. I'm just going to run with the witness's helpfulness. Absolutely. I think that one of the most important aspects of cross-examination, at least for me, is to listen to the witness testify. Don't just be content with what you had worked up. And I mean, I personally, I can't sit there and take notes about what a witness is saying. My trial notebooks are almost always empty because I'm, I'm just listening to what they say and, you know, maybe jotting down a note or two about where I want to go with it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't know what these witnesses are going to say. You have these summary reports, 302. Sometimes you might have a grand jury transcript, but you really don't know what they're going to say or how they said it or how they were baited by agents to say what they said. So it's really important to be able to call an audible while you're at trial. Tom Mesero shared a wonderful story with me during the Michael Jackson trial um, about uh, uh, Debbie Rowe, who was Michael Jackson's, you know, um, um, the mother of his kids, and she they had expected he had binders upon binders of cross examination material ready to impeach her with, and he expected her to get up there and just destroy Michael Jackson. And instead she got up there and talked about what a wonderful person he was and how kind he was and he couldn't hurt a fly. And he's sitting there much like I'm sure you and, and, and your co-counsel did. And he like took the, the binders and pushed them aside and just decided to see how much he could expound on that and slow it down and point it out. And he, so here you have a witness they thought was going to kill him absolutely it went just the opposite so and when you can argue to the to your you can i mean i bet you argued the heck out of that witness to the to the jury right during your during closing oh absolutely we demolished the other two cooperators and said look this guy has no reason to lie you can tell where there's overlap and why their two stories don't make sense but his does and it helped that my client testified and you know his testimony lined up with what this other guy was saying you ever seen in football, like we were just talking about the game a minute ago uh, before we came, before we started our the podcast, and you ever seen like a, a wide or a defensive back 
and the wide receiver doesn't get the ball. And there was maybe a little bit of bumping, but not enough. And the guy puts his hands up like this, just like, <laughs> I, you know, just trying to show, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the guy yeah. not catching the ball. That's sort of in my mind, what you guys did with that witness, which is, Hey, I mean, he's their witness and he's up here just saying that our, that our client is, is, is innocent that he didn't do anything wrong. Well, yeah, we absolutely. didn't put him up to that. Look at me. I look judge. I got nothing on my sleeve, no hands. Right. Well, anytime you could do that with the government's evidence, I think it gives you a lot of credibility and really gives strength to your position. Like, absolutely. Either the judge or the jury, like, look, that's not me. They're putting this on. So tell me, t- tell me how your, your style as a lawyer. So t- tell me how you characterize it. If you had like one word, what we just say is, is, is Vadim Glozman's style in court. I think it really depends on the case. I wish I can give you a one word answer. I was talking to my associate about this actually a few weeks ago because I didn't know how to answer a question like this for another interview I did. And he said, you act real friendly and kind of goofy with the prosecution. So when you try to do something to them, they're not going to see it coming. And I, okay. I, I don't know how to describe that. I think I try to be a straight shooter. I try to be reasonable. I don't try to make a big deal out of things that aren't a big deal, but you know, some things are important and, you know, some witnesses you have to really cross-examine the hell out of them and make them look like liars. Some you got to make your witness. Some you just want to make sure that the jury understands that these people are telling the truth. And some you just want to ask questions to make sure the jury knows that this witness isn't providing anything of value. And how, how about your, let's talk about your, there are some lawyers who have a flair for the dramatic and some who are much more um business-like in the courtroom um if you had to put yourself on a spectrum where would you put yourself i think somewhere towards the middle i don't know why i have this thought in my head but i feel like a jury wants someone they could relate to and i don't always think they want to watch someone who is at the top of their professional game strictly business all the time you know, extremely successful. So, you know, sometimes I go up there, like I fumble with my papers or like my pen falls or something. And, or, you know, I mess up all my paperwork after my cross and like I hug my papers and walk them back. And, you know, I'm not really like that as a person generally, but I, you know, I think the jury tends to maybe sympathize with me sometimes, or, you know, not think I'm some kind of shyster trying to pull one over on them. So somewhere in between, I think. How about your cross-examination style? So on the one hand, you've got people that think, you know, they're, this guy's ferocious. Um, you know, I know um, Jeff Lickman once described himself as, as suffocating. That was his, his approach. And there are others who are more um, surgical. I think Dan Webb was someone who I thought was very surgical about the way he went about things. Where would you put yourself in that, in, in that range? I think I'm kind of a combo of those two when it comes to a cooperator. I think you need to suffocate someone and really make them, you know, regret lying to you and regret lying to the jury. I'm also kind of methodical. I like to use looping a lot. So I kind of like to do a stream of questions and maybe the witness doesn't really know where I'm going with it. And when I get what I need from them, I leave it alone for a while until it becomes relevant later in my cross. You know, it kind of seems like almost a gotcha moment, but you know, it works. But when it comes to other witnesses, I don't Can you really give me an try. example of that? Give me an example of what you mean by looping. Well, I'll ask you know, just basic background questions or get them to admit something that on its face doesn't seem like it's gonna, you know, hurt their story or hurt their credibility or anything like that. But it's relevant to some other aspect 
that they talked about later. So I got to box them into their answer to make sure that they can't get out of it later. And then when I get to the next subject or a few subjects later, when it becomes relevant again, and they lie to me and they answer a question in a way I know they shouldn't answer it, I can go back and say, well, didn't you just testify 10 minutes ago that you did X, Y, and Z? And then they're, they're caught, they're caught in their lie. Love it. And, and But it is sort of, I mean, it, I mean, it's not gotcha in an unfair way, but it is, nobody says that you have to cross-examine a witness or approach a witness in court as though you're just trying, I mean, you know, you wouldn't, you're trying to stalk prey. You wouldn't just walk towards it with your, you know, your knife out. So here I come. <laughs> I mean, well, you're going to try to corner it and, you know, and then ultimately. Well, absolutely. And you know, the prosecutors are prepping them however many times for their testimony and telling them what to watch out for on cross-examination. So you, you don't want to be just straightforward and, you know, going for the kill right away. They're of course, be whenever you ask the witness that the prosecutor prepare you, or what you do to prepare for your testimony, or even if the prosecutor asks him, you know what I mean? Like, uh, he just told me to tell the truth. Yeah, and I'm only going to get cooperation credit <laughs> if I tell the truth. Wait, you showed up at the prosecutor's office and you talked to them for nine hours. For nine hours, you sat there and just they just said, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. Nine That's hours, <laughs> 10 times. Yeah, I mean, all right, give me your... um. How many counts were there in this case? The ex-business manager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were 13 total counts. My client was on four of them. And you got not guilties on all four? All four. What was that like when that came in? Did you guys hug? Was it like, you know, did you, was he you high-fiving? Were you, were you more reserved? Take, it was actually really, verdict. it was really interesting because they read R. Kelly's verdict first. And when they started reading the counts that we were with him on, and they started saying not guilty, for R. Kelly, we knew we were going to win because it was impossible if they were going to acquit him of those counts and convict us. And so I turned to my client and I said, we won. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, we won. And then he was like holding himself down, trying not to jump up. And by the time his name came around and they read the not guilty verdicts, even though there was another co-defendant, he jumped up and hugged me in the middle of the courtroom. Mm. Um, I'm like, you got to sit down. You got to sit down. And it was, you, it was euphoric. I, and I know that that's like the touchdown celebration. He's got to sit down. But you do just the tension that he must have had at that moment. And just, oh, absolutely. The, I mean, just the utter elation that he was going to go home must have been overwhelming. It was hanging over his head for three years since he was indicted. And the trial was five weeks long. They got all this press all day, every day. Courtrooms packed, overflow courtrooms packed. A lot of eyes around the country on this. He's um, he wasn't having a good time, and I could just tell it was such a sense of relief. I wish I could say I I know how he felt, but I don't. What, what did you tell? Well, you you did an, obviously did an amazing job on his behalf. So, but 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 what do you tell your client throughout the course of the trial? So let me start with: Do you are you watching the jury throughout the course of the case? I try to when I'm not the one, you know, doing a cross examination, or if I'm not doing the closing, I try to see which jurors I think are sympathetic to us or like us, which ones don't, what they're finding boring, what they're not finding boring. You know, try to do as much as you can, and I try to analyze the evidence as it comes in as much as I can for my client. I want to tell them like, you know, it's coming in better than we expected, or you know, what, don't worry, it's coming in just how we expected. We're prepared for this. How about your client? What do you tell your client when? in a trial when the jury's 
know, you're trying to watch the jury and their client sitting next to you. What do you tell them or him or her um, how to act, what to do during the trial? I actually had to tell this client a couple of times how to act. I, I told them they're watching you the whole time. You can't be bored. You can't be falling asleep. You can't be on your phone. Like all eyes are on you and you want to have a good first impression. It took a little bit for him to get there, but he got there. He's um he's an interesting client to say the least. He's a very successful businessman. He's always done things his own way. So it, it's hard for him to listen to other people to tell him how to act. I mean, do you have clients who I've had clients who sit there and they stare at the jury and I'm and I get wind of it and I'm like, dude, you gotta stop staring at the jury. Like, you know. You can't I have that. I have ones that pass sticky notes and make jokes on them and start laughing. Um, I just tell them, here's a notepad, here's a pen, pretend to take notes or something. And, and here, here's a tip that I've given to, to young lawyers, which I want to see if you agree with. Jury selection, the jury trial begins as you're driving to the courthouse. You don't know who you cut off in the parking lot. You don't know whose space that you took when they were trying to park. You don't know if you're trying to honk because you're late and you're brighting somebody as you're pulling in. You don't know when you go on the elevator in the front and you, and you show your, hey, I, hey, come on in, counsel. You know what I mean? And you scooch ahead of 50 other people. You don't know when you get on the elevator and you, you know, are talking on your phone and there's eight other people around. You don't know what their connection is. Are they jurors? Are they potential jurors? Are they? So you don't know any of that. And so it, you could be offending people all the way up to you. Then you get there and in the courtroom, they walk in, you go, well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. And they think this guy's an asshole. I absolutely agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. And I tell my clients all the time from when we walk from my office to the courthouse entrance, I can't control anything he does before that, but we're in game time mode right now. You know, no joking around, no laughing, no talking about your case out loud. You don't know who you're going to see. And, you know, in federal court, it's not usually a problem because everyone has to wait in line to get through security. But something I learned from my father-in-law, who's a trial lawyer, is in other courthouses where there are attorney entrances, I stand in the line with the potential jurors. So they see, you know, I'm, I'm not some special guy. I don't get special treatment. I stand in line with them. When I go eat lunch, I'll go to the cafeteria and they'll see me buying the same sandwich that they're buying, you know, drinking the same orange juice or whatever it is that they're drinking. And it, I think it kind of goes with my persona about how I am in court during the trial. I agree. There's a, I forget the name of the lawyer, but he used to say like, he used to tell his, um, um, his associates in the morning, he would say, I want you to go look at whatever the jurors have. If the jurors have water, we'll have water. If the jurors don't have water, we're not going to have water. We're not going to have anything on our table. We're not going to have any special, any privilege that the jurors themselves don't have. Not going to have them looking over at us and they look at those lawyers drinking water or drinking coffee, which I thought was, I watched that during the OJ case. I was fascinated that there were jurors, that the lawyers were like, you know, drinking coffee and stuff. I, I, you know, if the jurors have it, fine. But if they don't, you're up there drinking coffee. Like they're taking time out of their day. They don't want to be there. They're there. You're the one who's, and you're drinking coffee, which Absolutely. I get isn't a, isn't a major crime. I get it. But you're looking for impressions, right? You're talking about credibility. And, you know, in, in our line of work in criminal defense, there's so little room for error if you want to win. You don't want to lose because one juror just doesn't like your personality or what you're doing in the courtroom because you have so many other obstacles that you got to get over to get a not guilty in a case on one count or on all the counts. Mm -hmm. that you're so right. So right. 
why lose the edge on something so i want i want you to i want you to say that again say that again because it's so worth repeating there's so many obstacles that we have to cross and get over in a criminal defense case that you don't want to lose a case because you're drinking a coca-cola and a juror's not exactly and you won't know and you'll never know you won't know if you if you turn the juror off at that moment like you'll never know if that's one of the things that they just built up a dislike for you because you look like you're pampered or privileged. Right. Okay. I agree with you. And then, you know, when I do a jury trial, I, you know, I like wearing my nice suits, but I'm not going to wear cufflinks. Usually I'm not going to wear a flashy watch. I'll, I'm not going to wear some kind of over the top tie or anything like that. I want to, you know, neutral colors, neutral yep. suit. It might be a really nice suit, but it's not going to look like it's a really nice suit. There you go. So smart. Tell me, let's go back and tell me how you, um, uh, tell me about your sort of your, your career arc. Um, where did you go to school? Uh, where did you go to law school? How did you decide to become a, a trial lawyer? And how did you decide to become a criminal defense lawyer? So I went to undergrad at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And then I went to law school at John Marshall in Chicago. It's now part of University of Illinois at Chicago campus. Um, during law school, I started clerking for a criminal defense attorney, Mike Gillespie, out here in Chicago, and his dad was partners with Ed Jensen, who I ended up clerking for, and you know, he was described as the dean of Chicago criminal defense. I think a little part of Chicago history walked through his office. If there was any case of any substance, even if they didn't hire him, they came to see him about it, and you know, I got to clerk for him. I started working for him as an associate right out of law school. I never really gave much thought to doing any other kind of law besides criminal defense. I thought about playing it for a little bit, but for some reason, it was always ingrained in me that I'm going to do criminal defense. I I understood the law like I, that I learned in law school about it. I didn't have to overthink it. It came naturally to me. I, I was good at talking with people. You know, there was a lot of overlap with what I can do in my social life and what made sense to me law-wise. And I just kind of arrogant and vain maybe, but I was pretty good at it right away. And I was able to work for one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent attorney in Chicago. He was at the end of his career. So he was giving me a lot more responsibility than I probably ever deserved. Um, you know, I, I didn't squander that opportunity. After I worked for him for three and a half years, he was diagnosed with life ending cancer. Mm -hmm. So he shut down his practice and, you know, still mentored me, but I had some offers to go work for other criminal defense attorneys, and I I decided to take a chance on myself and start my own practice, and it's worked out. I I probably get more credibility than I deserve having his name on my resume, but it works out, and it's a good so fit. Let me um. So tell me a little bit about your, I mean your your firm. How would um? I mean, obviously you have a website because I've talked about it. What's the website? The website's glosmanlaw.com. Um, and you've got some media references, some other case, I mean, big case references. I, I mean, on your website, I've seen those. Absolutely. Um, what do you think about the intersection of, of the, the media, the you know, social media, and, and the practice of law? And do you use do you use social media when you're picking juries? Have you looked up jurors on 
do you have anybody looking them up? Do you, um, do you, I mean, anything like that at all? It depends on the trial. If we have enough resources and we have someone at our table that we could just have with a laptop and internet connection, we'll have them in real time kind of Google these people or see what's on their Facebook or Twitter. If we get the questionnaires ahead of time, we'll look into it a little bit. And we've been able to get some good insights. I think, you know, some people share more than other people share online. Some people have private profiles that you can only learn so much about, but anything helps. Again, this is However big the veneer is, 45 or 50 people, they're just random people. And there's only so much you can learn about them in a given amount of time. I still think, and I agree with you, that the best way to get to know them is to talk to them and to hear them talk and see how they react to you and how they answer the questions, even more so than looking at their social media profiles. Tell me, I want to ask you about, um, you, you referenced his name as Ed Jensen, right? Yes. So you said he was sort of the, the the dean for a while or or the most known or well-known criminal defense lawyer in chicago area if, if there was a piece of chicago history uh that, that touched on a criminal case it kind of went through his office at some point is that is that right that's absolutely right he represented a lot of chicago and illinois politicians he um for a while had some notorious mob related clients he represented a ton of people from the chicago board of trade when that was coming through Just, he represented former Governor Rod Blagojevich for a while. Um, he got the acquittal for R. Kelly in 2008. He represented Shia LaBeouf. Just pretty much any big case came through him. And he had a really good practice set up where he surrounded himself with people who specialized in different aspects of criminal defense. So you kind of got a full service firm. You know, He would do the trials. He had one partner who would specialize in sentencings, one who would specialize in writing and research and appeals one who would do like a state court work for him. And it was a full service firm and they get, did really good work. How did you, you ended up working for him for a period of time. Is that right? Yes. I started clerking for him my third year of law school and he was actually looking for a new associate at that time. And I was about a year from passing the bar and I was so nervous. He never talked to me because he had put me like in a back corner of the office <laughs> just to go print some documents and, file them away. And I went in there, my heart was pounding out of my chest. And I said, Hey, you know, I know you're looking to hire someone I'd like to be considered. And he just looks at me and goes, you already are being considered now leave my office. <laughs> and um, he decided to wait for me. I don't know what changed his mind, but he decided to wait for me to graduate and I had a job waiting for me. And so that's like in your, that's like working for working with getting in the lineup. If you're like a a baseball fan that's like getting the same lineup as like Babe Ruth or um right like a like a player of that magnitude absolutely I mean I'm sure other lawyers will disagree with comparing him to Babe Ruth every lawyer thinks he's the best lawyer but he would definitely be on the Mount Rushmore of Chicago criminal defense lawyers well I I, I know that that we would all some would say they're Babe Ruth but I mean and we all have as Michael Tegar says we all have you know uh, every lawyer has a uh, ego the size of whatever it is, the Mount McKinley, and we all have insecurities as deep as the Grand Canyon. And we're trying Absolutely. to always find a way to fill the Grand Canyon with our, you know, with our fill that insecurity. But we're always that's just the way it is. I mean, you can't do this business. You can't be in this business and not have and not think you're 
Babe Ruth. But when I say that, I mean, the privilege that I get doing this podcast is I get to, I get to meet and talk to not just peers, um, but people that I have read about, that I have I've watched, that I read about, that have who've written books about this before there was ever YouTube. I'm blown away that I, it's like going to lawyer fantasy camp and you're part of that. It's like just meeting the great lawyers in the country. It's such an incredible experience for me. And I agree. And I appreciate what you do. It helps me out a lot. It helps shorten my drives to work. I, <laughs> you know, I subscribe to your podcast and I listen. You got F. Lee Bailey, Alan yes. Dershowitz, Tom Mazzaro, Jeff Lickman. And, and now you. And now you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've loved about doing it is that some of these lawyers, that there was a different time, these lawyers in their day. So let's take Ed Jensen, for example. Take F. Lee Bailey. Um, you can take these lawyers. They were larger than life before there was social media amplification. I mean, before there was the internet. You know what that would take nowadays to get yourself as a, as a lawyer to be that, to have that level of notoriety? Well, they were larger than life. They, you know, household names. And I don't, there aren't lawyers like that anymore. At least I don't think there are. I think the no. internet saturates it so much more. You you could pay someone to do your SEO or whatever you pay people. The and month. every time they can hear, you can beat their chest and talk about how they, you know, you, eh, I got three cases dismissed. And they, you know, you, you look them up and it turns out that the, it was two traffic tickets where the cop didn't show and one where, you know what I mean? The, the judge Absolutely. dismissed the case because the complainant didn't appear. I mean, you know, it's the completely different type of, of you, you, people have the ability to really kind of beat their chest. So, um, and tell me, I want to talk a little bit before we, before I, um, I have to, to, to bid you um, farewell. Tell me about the other case you just finished trying, the one where you were, the one where you, the, it was a drug case and a, and a, a use of a firearm in the commission of a felony, right? Yes. And, and you walked to the jury, you said, tell me the strategy there in telling the jury, I'm going to make it easy on you. And you can get rid of count. Just check the box on count one. Don't even worry about it. There was. Tell me yeah, about that. Yeah. There, I mean, the facts here just weren't at dispute at all. He, he was talking to a cooperator for four months. They had recorded phone calls, text messages. They had the drug deal recorded on a video device. Then they went back and searched his house and they found drugs in his room and they found the gun in his room. So I knew it was a delicate argument to make. And I, I really wanted the jury to know that, look, I'm not here to waste anyone's time. I don't want you to think I'm trying to pull one over on you. The facts are the facts, but we have to apply the facts to the law that they decided to charge him with. And what happened was he had, he had two gun charges. He had a, a felon in possession of a firearm charge, a 922G, which I got dismissed pretrial. And then he had this 924C count, which was possessing it in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. So the gun he had, he had with no Ford card. It was a stolen gun, but his underlying felony conviction had been vacated in state court, so they couldn't charge him with that anymore. So I argued to the jury, like, look, I agree. He possessed that gun illegally. And if that's what they charged him with, I wouldn't be up here asking you to find him not guilty. But what they're saying is, is that he possessed this gun in furtherance of drug trafficking. And when he went to do the two kilo deal with the cooperator and he got arrested, he didn't have the gun on him. 
And if you have a gun for drug trafficking, wouldn't you bring it with you to a massive drug deal like this instead of leaving it at home with 150 grams? What purpose does that serve? And it was, I don't know if it was much of a legal argument as it was a common sense argument, mm -hmm. but, but it worked. And I didn't want to lose my credibility because I knew it was a thin line I was walking and there was so, be so much prejudice already. You got two and a half kilos of cocaine. You have a gun to someone without a Ford card, a gun that was stolen. And, you know, he's got 60,000 in cash, or whatever. And you're going happened. back to that issue, which is we've been talking about sort of weaving our way throughout this entire argument, this entire podcast, is that you, your credibility, you have to be credible. You can't act differently than you acted in the hallway. You can't act differently than you acted on the drive-in. The client can't undermine you at the table by joking and goofing around. You can't stare down the jurors because you'll lose credibility. You can't make arguments that don't, you don't cross-examine witnesses who you're, who have no need, for, no need for you to go after. You don't work off of a script if you have a witness who is going to be, who changes gears on you and is favorable. Your credibility is everything in that courtroom. I agree with you completely. And I think another aspect of this is, and maybe this is just me being naive, but I think some people look at criminal defense attorneys and might think they're trying to pull one over and they might have a negative, you know, preconceived notion about what a criminal defense attorney is. So I want to show them like, look, we're not just some cartoon character who's going to come up here and wave our arms and yell and pound the table and try to convince you to do something that is just ridiculous. I want you got to it. it. I ask them in voir dire. If I get the chance to voir dire, I talk to them and I'll ask them who watches these law and crime related shows. What do you watch? It's invariably, someone says law and order or special victims. Always. Right. And I said, tell me about the prosecutor. Sam Waterstone in the original you know, series played the prosecutor. Tell me about the prosecutor. Um, decent, honest, you know what I mean? Like sacrificing, trying to do the right thing. Okay. And tell me, you got a picture of that person? Yeah, he looks like da 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 da, -da. And tell me about the defense lawyer. And they all start to chuckle because they know the guy's got a ponytail, right? He's bright shirts, bright, bright shirt. He's coming in there at the last second with some untimely, you know, filing in the back of a, of a, you know, of a, of a blue back. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, making some argument getting, you know, I said, so, you know, I mean, and there's a saying that art imitates life. Is that true? What do you I think, think about that? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. I, I think that's part of it is that is your credibility that, that you're not some cartoon character and that this is a real case. There's a lot of gravity to the situation. Someone's life is on the line and you have to understand that this is very serious. I don't want to do something that's going to make you think that I'm not taking this seriously or that I'm some kind of clown that's just here for a paycheck and I don't care what happens. And my credibility goes towards all that. And I kind of like the my new strategy in some of these cases is I'm not going to dispute what the government's proving. They got it, but what they are saying happened isn't what they charged. And I've had some success recently in doing those kind of defenses instead of just going up there and say, you know what, they're telling you the wrong facts. That's not what happened. This is what happened. And I think you get in a slippery slope when you try to battle facts too much. Sometimes so you, you have to. And so you've had cases where you're saying to them, um, these are basically the facts. They just have it. They have a charge drawn. Yeah, they did it. They just didn't do what they're charged with doing. 
Good. I like that. And that's proved successful to you before you. Yep. Absolutely. Especially in this most recent one. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Love that. So you, so you're not getting in a mix up with the facts. You're just mixing it up with them over whether it really, whether the statute applies, that makes you like, so you're now just, you're not saying, oh, they're all liars and cheats and horrible people. You're telling them, yeah, you can, these are the facts basically, but let me give you another way to look at it. Exactly. And what I've been doing recently in my openings and closings is usually I was always very fact intensive in my openings and closings. And I try to stay away from general, you know, aspects of criminal defense, like reasonable doubt and the importance of a jury. But in these ones where I'm not arguing facts and I'm more arguing, did he do what they charged him with doing? I've been trying to prime the jury and understanding, you know what, this isn't going to be easy. He did some bad things. You're not going to like what he did. You're probably not going to like him as a person. But that's not what this is about. This is about the government proving what they said they were going to prove. It's great stuff. I love it. All right, I got to. I'm going to ask you a couple of real quick questions. Best, your favorite type of witness to cross-examine? Cooperator. It's the most fun. Um, best cross-examiner you've ever seen? I have to be Ed Johnson. Um, and tell me if you would, what do you think is uh, the one person? anywhere in time that you would like to cross-examine yourself? That's a good question. Um, I think someone else answered this on your podcast before, but I wouldn't agree with it. It's Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I think there would be a lot of good impeachment evidence there that you can get out. And uh, yes, there would. Yes, there would. You, you better be ready, though, because you need to have your impeachment material and you better be ready to, to, to try to lock him down. You might so, try to cross-examine your back. You could. You, could, <laughs> you might. <laughs> so, all right. Tell me about your social media um, and your Internet presence. Where can people find you? Let's start with your website. My website is glosmanlaw.com. I have a Twitter account that I'm not very active on, but it's at vglas. And I also have a Facebook page for my law firm. All right. And what's the Facebook page? You'd have to search for me on Facebook. I don't know the URL. <laughs> it would just be Law Offices of Adime Glasman. Okay. Um, and if anybody wanted to email you, how would they email you? Say it to us, give it to us slow so they can find you if they want to ask you any questions. My email is VG, my initials, at glasmanlaw.com. Okay. Um, Vadim Glosman, I am so glad that you were able to join us on the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. Um, again, uh, I'm super impressed with your approach to cases and with your, um, your uh, telling me things that I, I know, but every time I hear from someone like you, I, I myself learn something new. And to me, I, I love talking shop with great lawyers. I love hearing strategies. I try to picture myself in the courtroom as your, your client jumped up and got that not guilty. And that's such an incredible moment for, for you and for him. I can picture it. I can picture it. You almost want to tell him, go ahead, man, jump. They can't do nothing <laughs> to you now. <laughs> well, it's hard because I wanted to jump with him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I am so glad that you joined the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. Um, you, you are rightly a member of the amazing trial lawyers that have chosen to give me and give my listeners some time uh, on this podcast. And um, you're awesome, man. And thank you so much for doing it. And um, uh, I, again, I appreciate it. This is Neil Rockine, 
This is the Killer Cross Examination podcast with uh, Chicago's new legend. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. You got it, man. You Thanks earned for it. Thanks having me as a guest. You earned it. <laughs>